Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Fáilte Kriganakadaf Inyov. You're very welcome to um, the first of two lecture series which we're running in the library uh, this this term, and this one is called Scribing for Ireland: The Olungon Family and the Royal Irish Academy. The impetus for this lecture series is that our colleagues in University College Cork in the Department of Irish held a conference at the end of August, Kogol Nalungonak, um, the Olungon Conference, a very well attended conference with a wide range of speakers, all about the Olungon family of scribes and their work and achievement. And so, um, in collaboration with UCC, we have mounted an exhibition here in the Academy Library, which holds one of the largest collections of Olungon manuscripts from the full gamut of uh, Olungon scribes and covering uh, the full gamut of topics covered by Irish manuscripts generally. Um, and we're also very pleased that this lecture series is being run in association with UCC. So as somebody earlier said, uh, they couldn't get to Cork for the conference, but Cork has come to Dublin. And so we have three of the lectures from Cork as part of this series for you. The first one I'm very pleased to say today is being presented by our colleague from UCD, Dr. Maeveen Neordl, who is the head of Modern Irish at UCD. Maeveen is very widely published. Uh, she's a preeminent scholar in the field of Modern Irish. She gained her PhD in Celtic studies in Freiburg, and she is very um, well uh, recognised through, throughout uh, the Irish um, sphere internationally. Today um, she is speaking on the topic of the Olungons, which were part of her thesis work in Freiburg. And she will, I know you will very much uh, welcome this lecture. It's a great keynote lecture for the series four generations of literary scholarship, the remarkable contribution. Thank you very much indeed, Siobhan, and it's a pleasure for me to, to speak on this particular topic today. I have very fond memories of coming back from Freiburg and uh, trying to source as much material as I could uh, and Siobhan was always very helpful and accommodating, as were uh, her staff. So thank you, Siobhan, for the invitation. Over 4,000 Irish manuscripts are still in existence today, and most of these were produced during the 18th and 19th centuries. When we consider the scribes who produced these handwritten books of Irish prose and poetry at that time, we know that the contribution of those based in Cork City and County is particularly prominent, not least, of course, because of the evidence provided by Professor Brandon O'Krahuid in his pioneering study, which was published in 1982. That important book discusses some 200 scribes 
who flourished between 1700 and 1850. And of these native men of letters, the contribution by the Olongoan scribes certainly shines through. Thanks to their extraordinary dedication in producing handwritten books of Irish prose and poetry, over 600 manuscripts have come down to us, which were written entirely or in part by members of this family. The scribes in question are as follows. Michal, son of Pather, and his son Michal Og, the latter's three sons, twins Pather and Paul, and their younger brother Joseph, and finally Joseph's son Michal. We have here then four generations in one family who ensured that literature in the Irish language continued to be tra transmitted and disseminated by hand in written doc documents during the 18th century and well into the second half of the century thereafter. Even in the second half of the 19th century itself, when the tradition of Irish manuscript production was coming to an end, we find members of this family still producing beautiful books in clear, neat hands. Taking all of this together then, theirs is truly an exceptional case. Michal, son of Pavar spent his formative years in Ballydonoghue near Glynn in County Limerick. He was employed as land agent and rent receiver to Edmund Fitzgerald, who became Knight of Glynn in 1737. On at least three occasions, this Olongoin scribe refers to himself as coming from Glaun Gan Ridder for Rear, from Glynn without a light knight, alas. We can apply this description literally, of course, to the state of affairs which came about in 1740 when the knight, Edmund, a Catholic, was ousted from the property in Glynn in that year by his younger brother, Richard Fitzgerald, who had conformed to the established church. Judging from manuscripts written by this Olongoin scribe in different parts of County Cork and South Kerry from 1740 until the early 1760s, he moved about considerably during those years. We find him transcribing in 1740, for example, near Castlehaven in West Carberry, and by the early 1750s he was in Dublin completing transcripts of prose tales for the renowned 18th century doctor and manuscript collector Dr John Fergus. Another of Olongoyne's more prominent scholarly patrons was Dr John O'Brien, Roman Catholic Bishop of Cloyne and Ross, who was best known for his Irish-English dictionary, Focolor Gaelene Saxvirla, or an Irish-English dictionary, which was published in Paris in 1768. Among the scribal texts provided by our scribe for Bishop O'Brien are genealogies relevant to the bishop's ancestors, the O'Briens of Dolgash and Thomond, which Olongoin compiled between 1760 and 1762. It is not unlikely, therefore, that he was included among those scholars referred to by Dr. O'Brien in the preface to his dictionary as, and I quote, persons of the best skill in the Irish language with whom I kept a correspondence of letters for that purpose for several years, unquote. <clears throat> Our scribe returned at least once to his native Limerick in, in the early 1750s, as he is mentioned as the complainant in a warrant, or Boranthus, 
by the poet Andreas Macra or Ammangre Suguch against Sean Otoma on Hirin in January 1753. Described there as a nobleman, most wise and refined, Sir Ar Sorlik Shi Olte, Macra tells us that Olongoin added to his company in crossing the Meg, Gurheen in the Royal As well as crossing the Meg, the introduction accompanying Macra's poem informs us that Olongoin at that time was on an extensive visit in County Limerick, El Moorchwerd Igunthe Liminig, where he must have come into contact with other local Meg poets, or Philly in the Maw. This is all the more likely, of course given that Olongoin himself was a poet, and a handful of poems have come down to us, which Michal Oak and his man manuscripts attributes to his father. One example would suffice here, a political poem of the Ashling type, beginning, Im Ashling er Malabig is Mui, and composed, according to Michal Oak, in 1752. Its millenarian assurance is that freedom from foreign oppression is guaranteed for the Irish within a month following the triumph of Charles, son of James III, Cormac Sérvach Hiamash Oig. And I'll read the Irish text for you. Adavim im lavarha gan vreig as she, nach father vesen galarsa er mehem chri, galamdit soldaganish ach beder mi, gor canasach veg aridlucht nangail nasi. A ta daltalum is Saxona is echtoch gniv, shalavige in Alabin rivre marweed, ka vilimar manamnoch gan stena pain, gur snimoch lum gacanasoch marchele erish. Returning to the prose tales copied by our scribe <laughs> for Dr. John Fergus in Dublin in the early 1750s, we find a colophon included by Michal Olongoin there, which suggests his awareness of and indeed maybe even his slight impatience with the itinerant nature of his life. He informs the reader that his work was written Le Shachroin Shiori or Glaunan Ridde Agunte Lemine Sun Moon Imalina Divlina Ahaclea, with everlasting wandering from Glyn and County Limerick in Munster in the town of Dublin. Nonetheless, he eventually settled down towards the end of his life in the parish of Carignavar, my own native parish, in County Cork. It was here that his son, Michal Og, was born on the 1st of August, 1766. And it was here too that he himself died four years later. We do not know what attracted him to settle in this particular location, but he may have been swayed in his decision by the fact that, that Daniel McCarthy, Donald Spoinach, brother of Charles, Cormac Spoinach, and owner of the castle of Carignavar, was married to Grace Fitzgerald, who, it is claimed, belonged to the Fitzgeralds of Glyn. Michal, son of Padre Olongoin, was buried in the McCarthy burying place, White Church, a fact that he himself seems to have anticipated in the following stanza, which was remembered in Glyn down to recent times. On Glaun Ivad Mahagan Mahogoskil, Bovain Lostads and Laksa Hogan Diem, Yoshid Megan Frab, Igorin Chil, San Dampel Gal, Lehashen Road, Imli. In an obituary in honour of his father, Michal Og had the following to say Benach Dain and Laev, Augustan Langel, Lehanam and Daigid, Grovid, Relig, 
rasta glan venig the scrive on shanlarsa shishin mihal macfather macfather o glanan rigide the gunte limine agas ta kurha inish san temple yal na mona moje it is harkig agas vala temple na blena a shachtig a shachto a shadegshe dia lenamnam a derim agas lenarnamna ile Govekim Galerichele, Evlahonus, Amen, Hortegeschachtig, Egorkuk. This particular tribute is the first of two which Mihalog composed in 1817, and he composed other similar tributes to his father in 1813 and in 1833. I don't have time to go into this now, but I don't think that those dates are actually coincidental. I think they actually. Um, concur with um, difficult periods in his own personal lifetime and uh, this uh, prompts him, if you like, to reflect on his own um, uh, background and his culture and obviously uh, the debt which he feels um, uh, his father, or he, he owes his father far, um, far, um, far, well, and the first instance, of course, for uh, inheriting some of his father's manuscripts, and then, of course, the overall question of how he acquired the Irish language, etc. So while on the surface, 1817, uh, twice, 1813 and 1833 might seem arbitrary, they're not, in fact. In any event, uh, this particular tribute and, and the others, uh, they remind us of an overall feature regarding this particular native man of, man of letters, and it is this. Michal Og provides us with copious notes about himself, along with fascinating vignettes about family and friends, explanatory glosses, colophons and jottings, as well as correspondence with contemporary Irish scribes and scholars. Taking all of this material together, we have a valuable record of events in Michal Og's time and insights into his life almost on a day-to-day -day basis. As well as being one of the most prolific scribes in 18th and 19th century Ireland, he was also a competent poet, and his poems too are a rich source of biographical information. Over 350 of Michal Og's compositions have come down to us, 41 of which were published some 10 years ago by Ronan O'Donoghue in his publication Mihalog Olongain Phile. But we, we look forward to a complete scholarly uh, anthology of Olongain's poems, which is currently being edited by Professor Blandon O'Cruhuj. So let us begin by paraphrasing one intriguing autobiographical note written by Mihalog in 1791 when he was about 24 years of age. He tells us that he was born on the 1st of August, 1766, at Bialoha in the parish of Dunbolog, that he was orphaned at the age of eight and a half, and that as, as a result, he lived for two years in the parish of Cahara, in the barony of Carberry West, having been sent for by Father Donal O'Carroll. On his return, he writes that he went to school, but interestingly, he goes on to say that he is not proud of the fact that he had to interrupt this period of schooling to turn his hand to cow herding and to delivering milk in churns. No forebear of his had ever engaged in such menial activity. By 18, he tells us that he was back at school again, studying arithmetic and learning Latin during the next year. 
This unique autobiographical account is striking for the personal light it throws on the man himself, of course, but I think it also sets out what would eventually emerge as Michal Og's ambition to produce manuscripts and see his scribal craft through to the next Olongan generation. For example, we get a sense of the importance for him of learning, as well as a sense of his awareness that this was a course that he, as an Olongan, was obliged to follow. It is a stance which comes through time and again in, in the colophons and notes addressed to him, to, uh, addressed by him to his dear reader, Lehoid Onovan. The particular note of 1791 is not addressed to any particular dear reader, however. In fact, it smacks more of an, of an entry in a personal diary, whereby the writer is taking stock of his life up to that year, but is looking ahead at the same time to a new stage, which would turn out to be one devoted to scholarship and learning. This brings me to an important function of manuscript compilation and transmission for Michal Oak. Several texts and manuscripts, he says, he wrote, for my own use, hum musaide fein, a statement of intent which occurs frequently in his colophons. We find it, for example, in the earliest manuscript which he began writing at the age of 19 or 20. And we also find the variant expression by him that he is writing hum musaide fein agus for my own use and that of everybody. Linked with this is a, sense of his activity, uh, 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 is a sense of his active role in retrieving Irish sources from the darkness and oblivion of the past. By way of illustration, let us take the following passage from an introduction to Onkelach Fa, the woodcock, an intriguing title which he gives to an anthology of prose and poetry, uh, which he compiled in 1816. I'll read the Irish or original. A lehoid yil unavin, exo unkalach tha, sheshin laur, unavillage simva torusquala, et hogi, agasarhunivluchtiv, nail fein lichele, ir nagur, gur, sungart, mikshe inish, et olal orolov, eamen hakeed, a gorka, noch the yil gama as a scrive, agasin ervaha leshenilk, agas don kunov, fuskalta, the hutite on norahodus, naruduch, nanarha. On a will lecky and daimshit, neither Evsud Dina Ele, at a Keshnev Gazagiran at Alcus Nahimshire, Agasar Hetke on Arigit. Revival of the language was central then, but so too was the hope for support, both moral and financial, for himself and his scribal confreres in promoting the language. According to the heading accompanying one of his poems, for example, his hope is that the poem might be a means of a grisu vinagail fan lailin daulum agus the chimadar bon agus er boin tasuf aul bedilacht agus bechuido of the yenuf, encouraging the people of Ireland to learn Irish and to keep it alive and permanent as would be due and proper for them to do. Dating from 1800, the same year of course as the creation of the union between Great Britain and Ireland, the poem offers encouragement to fellow scribes and prospective patrons alike to work together for the sake of the language. Gach suirgar slacht for sholta, gavul puin dar shan skolta, ma tagur gavach an rafa, tugach eid dan nach rafa. 
Therein, of course, lies the corollary to revival from darkness and oblivion, namely, the necessity of committing texts to writing and re rewriting so as to ensure their con conservation for a wider readership in the future. By 1802, Michal Og set about compiling a list of what he called Irish books in his own possession, which were enough to keep the language alive, Noch the Belor from the Tangan the Himadar Bun. By 1808, this literary canon amounted to 21 items in all and included Keating's Foros Fassa, devotional texts by Keating again, as well as by MacAngel, Dunleavy, and others, anthologies bearing intriguing titles such as On Dilunach and On Cherin Churu. By 1815, he was confident that the scribal texts in his possession up to that point would, in his own words, be sufficient to compile or make a pretty library of our native tongue. There was also, of course, a practical side to this stock-taking exercise, in that it was important that he himself knew what he actually owned and intended to keep, intended to keep within the family. This he makes clear, for instance, in a letter to his son Paul in 1813, in which he warns him not to give on loan a particular little old book, Shanlaur Belg, to anyone at all, because the law of borrowing is to break the borrower, in that the borrower becomes the lender also of the borrowed item. Advice which incidentally also appears in Michal Og's substantial collection of proverbs published by T.F. O'Rahilly in his um, work Mis Miscellany of Irish Proverbs, published in 1921. Michal Og continues by telling Paul that he himself possesses but a few of the many fine Irish books written by his own father because he was but a child at the time of his death. Some further biographical details now concerning Michal Og the man. Down to the year 1796, we find him moving around Carignavar, transcribing manuscript material in private houses. But by 1797, he's beginning to move further afield to places like Kerry Pike, Cork City and McCroom. Early in the year 1795, he contemplated emigrating to America. This was not to be, however, and his decision to remain in Ireland may have been influenced by the fact that he had fallen in love at that time <laughs> with a local woman. Writing in Kilidonahu in the summer of 1795, for example, he concluded his work with the following admission. Now, in the original source, the words which I've underlined here are encrypted in the form of a cipher, thereby indicating that Michal Og may have used it either as a means of keeping his communication secret or as a way of conveying special meaning in an otherwise, in an otherwise straightforward colophon. Some weeks before this, on the 20th of July 1795, our scribe called the same cipher 
om orge, or om orge, golden om. And he outlined by means of an example, what he called sample, five vowels, three diphthongs, two digraphs, a nasal and lenition. This he followed with a number of quatrains in the script and concluded in the accompanying colophon, also in Om Orga, that its purpose was for my own use and that of the Irish soldiers. The expansion in Cork and its hinterland at this time, um, the context of the statement, I should say, is not insignificant when we consider the the um, the, uh, the conspiratorial uh, uh, expansion in Cork and its hinterland at this time. Catholics, seeing no hope of emancipation from the Irish government in the wake of the failed Fitzwilliam Lord Lieutenancy in 1795, were looking to the secret society of the United Irishmen to promote the Catholic cause. A United Irish club had already been formed in Cork in the summer of 1793, and by 1797 the movement was well established in the city. Taking the above colophon in light of such regenerated radical activity, therefore, Michal Og must surely have understood the necessity to encode messages in ciphertext, and, as I have argued elsewhere, the manuscript evidence strongly suggests that he himself, in fact, was the original creator of Om Orga. The necessity for encryption would soon present itself as a likely option for our scribe when he joined the United Irishman in Cork City in 1797 and continued to work as an active United Irish organiser over the next two years at least. As the only major Irish language poet known to have been involved in the movement, he composed a number of poems promoting the United Irish cause while at the same time condemning the fate of its prominent leaders Arthur O'Connor and Lord Edward Fitzgerald. One of these poems, he notably informs us, is to be sung to the air of Rights of Man, Foon Cordine, while another of his manuscripts includes instructions in English for sword exercises. Such was his success in recruiting members for the United Irishmen in Navarre and throughout Cork County, moreover, that his name occurs during the trial of a fellow member, Simon Donovan, in June 1799, his effectiveness as a courier throughout Munster finding particular mention during the court proceedings. The threat this posed to his life caused him to go into hiding, begging them tehe, he tells us in an extended note. But, but he also comments that it was God's will that Simon was set free and that the Boers did not catch me. Recalling his duties as an effective courier at that time undoubtedly brings to mind the poem for which he is probably best known and probably the one that's most familiar to you here. Um, namely that which was his personal missive to the, the Munster men requesting that they follow the brave example of those in Wexford who fought in the Battle of Vinegar Hill and beginning when when the Vunlath Arunyil Sestor. Besides his role as scribe and poet, Michal Og, like many 18th and 19th century scribes, was also a teacher. We must remember, of course, that institutional schooling was not introduced into Ireland until 1831, and that schooling before then was generally left to um, private initiative with or without the support of the, of the churches. 
1799, at the age of about 32, he tells us that he had a school in Balinagloch, Carignavar. Elsewhere, he mentions teaching in the parish of Dún Bolog and in the townlands of Anlair and Balinabortoch. In 1809, we find him teaching further afield in Cahardrini in northeast Cork. And by 1814, he styled himself an Ide Skule, or school teacher, in Glanmire Church. He was first and foremost, of course, a teacher to his own family, and this may explain references in his colophons to manuscript material being completed for the use of his own family and that of everybody. Official documentation of his role as teacher has also survived. In May 1826, for example, he had completed teaching, one quarter, in the Bandon district for the Irish Society of Bible Teachers, for which he received a gratuity of one pound, three shillings and one pence. Pragmatically, of course, this proselytizing mission provided him with a necessary source of income. But Michal Og is likely to have recognized the opportunity it provided to promote the Irish language itself. After all, he had written some 10 years before this that, and I quote, and this is in English, one of the best methods for preserving the Irish language is to make the schoolmasters teach the catechisms in Irish, especially in country places, unquote. Reference to formal schooling for his sons features as well in Michal Og's manuscripts. In August 1816, for example, he addressed a stanza to one Ono Sullivan, a teacher in Cork City, outlining his intention to send Paul to school there. In 1818, he composed three stanzas beginning Gluesh Earth of Wachelvik Eirig Oig, Move Along, O Little Happy Young Boy, the boy in question being his son Podrick, who was to attend a school in Inishannon near Bandon run by Ashano Dasuna. While two years later, in 1820, Michal Og noted that Pather was also at school in Inishannon. In April 1833, and in a stanza beginning, A Iruni Have Islenthe O gentle, downy, learned, and of excellent reputation, Michal Og seems to be recommending a boy, possibly his youngest son, Shosov, as a pupil. Shosov was still at school three years later, in 1836, when Michal Og wrote that his son, quote, entered upon his first quarter with Mr. Murray on the 30th of June, 1836. Murray's terms for teaching English grammar and bookkeeping, eight and six per quarter, God bless us all, M. Longan. The early decades of the 19th century were particularly difficult for Michal Oak. He had married Mary Lyons, probably in 1800, and the couple had eight children in all to provide for. Twins Pather and Paul, uh, Podrig, Nance or Nancy, Sean or John, he's also called, and Joseph. The eighth child, Mary Crowley, from his wife's first marriage, was accidentally killed at Pope's Quay in April 1821. Michal Og recorded this tragic death as follows. On the death of Mary Crowley, who departed this life on the second day of April 1821, being accidentally killed by a plank that fell down off, the key, off of the quay as she was taking water at the ship on, po on Pope's Quay, Cork. An, an, an unlucky accident indeed. And we find um, that the high occurrence of, of drownings as a result of unprotected quays and open docks in Cork City finds regular reporting in the Cork press from the second half of the 18th century. Following the birth of Pather and Pole in 1801, 
Mihalog's manuscripts locate him in West Limerick and North Kerry between 1802 and 1807. When in North Kerry in June 1802, he set down 12 personal rules of prayer, fasting and penance, which he concluded as follows. Kurim dream le dolga hifirum agas repakamarov the yen of remhil gabra no hihe, o groin erebakamarov. Aidi much, temple aidi grene on lafilen other, sheshin raha on taurig agas raha on oed, sheshin o valhun agasawin, agas aidi riv aidi grene on lafilen yara, sheshin o hawin de belhune, mushaun the hira, agas mala, agas maig the knee, agas ganave divin, achave ele hoedacht, ishkinoedacht. By 1807, the family had returned to Cork, settling first in Kerry Pike near the Lee, Kulivarahu Koshli, and then once again in Carig Navarre. Mihalog continued his profession as itinerant teacher and scribe, but we find that once the family settled in Dublin Hill in 1815, Irish language scholars in Cork City and beyond are gradually becoming part of his circle. One prominent example is his friendship with fellow parishioner Donoghue O'Flean, who was based in Shandon Street, where he had a grocer's shop. The next five years marked the beginning of the most prolific stage of Michal Oak's output as a scribe. O'Flean, of course, had borrowed the Book of Lismore in 1815, and while in his possession in Cork, for over a year, this 15th century vellum manuscript was the most important source for scribes based in the city, particularly for Michal Og and his twin sons. This was also a time of substantial commissioned work, two of his most important patrons being Dr John Murphy, Roman Catholic Bishop of Cork, and Henry Joseph Hurd, Church of Ireland, Dean of Cork and Ross. Patronage by herd, of course, reflects an overall changing attitude to Irish by Protestants in Ireland, for whom literary sources in the language were becoming an object of increasing antiquarian interest by the early decades of the 19th century. Not only was Michal Og mindful of this cultural shift, but he acknowledged its potential for restoring and preserving the Irish language. And so, in 1818, for example, in an essay under the heading Irish Language, our scribe had the following to say, it is in the power of the Protestant and Catholic pastors of every denomination generally to do much in restoring and preserving the Irish language. They are enlightened and good men and may this promote wholesome doctrines and valuable knowledge. Other significant patrons and scholarly contacts down to 1820 include the prominent Cork banker James Roach and Father Paul O'Brien, the first professor of Irish at St. Patrick's College, Maynooth. This period in Cork City then was a good one for Michal Og's scribal craft and indeed for that of his sons also. He became a significant contributor to the network of scribes who flourished in the first decades of the 19th century, as documented in Brandona Crahuis Scrivahorkoi, which I mentioned at the outset here. The context of Mihalog's work changed significantly too, from the more local-based one involving transcription in his own home or in the homes of friends and fellow scribes, to one which became more patron-centred. Given that many of these patrons were English-speaking, we find, unsurprisingly, original material in Irish being accompanied more and more in his manuscripts by English translations.
The period from 1820 to his death in 1837 sees Michal Og negotiating further difficulties, including the prospect of abject poverty due to a sharp decline in patronage. This period also yielded the fine poem, his finest, I believe, Fuacht na Skalpische, which he composed in 1823, in which the man lays bare his personal state of desperation, but which also offers an, an, an illuminating insight into the more general state affairs of affairs for the Irish at that time. Fuacht na Skalpische, datach is geirhidig, cruas na lapasa is aspabrit leislihe, Morhid taxana dachaha is glerch kisa, togborha kahme is aspahoch e aguintuch. Failing sight was by now becoming a problem, as he makes clear in the following complaint addressed to his friend Donacha O'Flean. Le lehe mecheves le dilema yark is fede le ledras, govillema ma. Ni leetedum versa na shilan the heart is as male than reige, marskudis le shell. And that also appears in TFR Ahli's Bourdon Vaga. By 1831, Michal Og set about selling off some of his manuscripts to prospective buyers, as for example to Archdeacon Thomas O'Keefe, former parish priest of Glanmire, to Father Matthew Horgan, parish priest of Blarney and Whitechurch, and to an unnamed friend of Mr. Michael Begley, of Father Michael Begley, um, curate in Carignavar. Brief commissioned work also comes his way from Bishop Murphy in the year 1833-1834, but he declines the opportunity to produce scribal texts for the prominent Irish language scholar from Waterford, Philip Barron, explaining his decision rather resignedly um, to fellow scribe William McCutchett as follows. A time she inish el no son tanavadra, ro chanul el mochunifain, Ir mehom namelyans chifid on Hiedla than Vish Trohin, Neblina, Hochchekachukuig, Evi Redia. Mihalog died two years later on the 17th of May 1837, and an obituary notice was published during the same month, which stated that, and I quote, a few hours before his death, still calm and confiding in a future hope, he breathed into, into, the, air, uh, into the ear of an affectionate son a short and expressive Irish stanza, which he wished to have inscribed on his tomb, unquote. The short and expressive Irish stanza in question was probably the following one. Le cuish na cutter ta shevar swek, the vi munte milish glansonintha sayer gan gruem. Leer hoog gach twerim da dikker eden uer is gigig ille rollin son nevroch suas. Turning briefly now to the third generation of Olongoin scribes, the twins Pather and Paul and their younger brother Joseph found in their father a consummate mentor. Evidence of fatherly guidance emerges quite early, in fact, in a poem of seven stanzas composed by Michal Og in 1811 and beginning, Elenev Atoidus the Hail, O child who are in the beginning of your life. The poem, according to the accompanying heading, he intended as, quote, good advice for the young person, Kor Levadan the Og. Writing in July 1812 for his own sons and particularly for Paul, who seems to have been a favourite, the Vakafein had the fall, Michal Og warned as follows: Bianan Bosak Tachtet Roil Mar Elchin Ort, Iskachder Vart Smile Danener Godfit Egnach Ort, Rinung Ross Gestach Stuig Fechen Ort, Iskinig Law and the Shemel Lord and the Kreis Nagloch. 
and speaking to his son Joe, Davak Joe, that's Joseph, in October 1832, he cautioned, Like their father before them, all three brothers worked as teachers. According to a report published from an abstract of returns by the Protestant and Roman Catholic clergy for the year 1824, for example, Peter and Paul Long ran a school in the parish of Dunbullock, which was attended by 78 males and 42 females, according to the Protestant clergy, and 45 males and 25 females, according to the Roman Catholic clergy. Files in the National Archives name Joseph Long as appointee to the newly created National School in Whitechurch in February 1849. Teaching, however, was clearly not his first love, and by 1861 we find him requesting the Cork antiquarian scholar John Wendell to use his influence with members of Cork City Corporation in ensuring that he be given a recently vacated job as toll collector at the toll gate in what he calls Fair Lane, which is now Wolf Tone Street in Cork City. And this, he says, would, and I quote, rid me of the drudgery of teaching and the vexatious inspection of inspectors, unquote. While Paul O'Longoyne continued to teach in what he calls Nachnahorgan in 1829, a note by Michal Og informs us that Pather and his younger brother Pothrig were, and I quote, working at, the, at that time for James Handley. And he is no doubt the J. Handley Esquire mentioned in Samuel Lewis's contemporary account of Glanmire Village, who together with uh, Mr. Lyons employed, and I quote Lewis here, upwards of 200 persons in the Glanmire woolen factory higher up the river, unquote. It seems that Pather eventually took charge of the family holding in the townland of Knockboy, as Peter Long is named the principal occupier in Griffith's valuation of Dunbolog Parish in 1853, when the property was valued at an annual fee of £2.10. shillings. Paul O'Longoyne resided, for some years at least, in Sallybrook, but he moved to Dublin in the 1850s. Griffith's valuation names Joseph Long as principal occupier of a house and small garden in Whitechurch Parish in 1852 and valued at an annual fee of one pound. He had married, married Mary Hickey two years before this and the couple had eight children during their years in Whitechurch. Like his brother Paul, Joseph also moved to Dublin where he lived from the 1860s just off the North Circular Road. The couple's ninth child, a daughter Bridget, was born in Dublin in 1867. Joseph died in 1880 and was buried in Glasnevin Cemetery, although no monument marks the grave itself. The lot of this third Olongan generation reflects the changing times confronting Irish scribes generally in the second half of the 19th century when Irish manuscript production was in its final phase. Although the Longoyne brothers continued to benefit from individual patrons, patronage of this kind began to give way to that given by institutions and learned societies, and included in the institutions, of course, this learned institution, the Royal Irish Academy. Paul and Joseph were both employed here as official scribes, Paul taking up this post in 1854, where he carried on cataloguing the institution's Irish manuscripts until his death in 1866. 
Joseph, who according to Timothy O'Neill was, quote, destined to become the finest penman of the family, unquote, was appointed to the post of scribe to the academy in 1865. Among his duties, he produced facsimile transcripts of Laur Nahire, the Laur Bidak, and the Book of Leinster, all of which were the basis of lithographic reproductions of these medieval books published by the Academy in the 1870s and 1880. Joseph died before his transcript of the Book of Leinster was printed, a work which, according to the editor, Robert Atkinson, and I quote, was a labour of love that absorbed Olongoin's life, unquote. Joseph's son, Michal, or Michael, was also employed by the Royal Irish Academy. On the 21st of March, 1874, for example, Joseph addressed the following letter on behalf of his son to the librarian, Robert Atkinson. Sir, I agree that my son is to enter on employment, on employment at the Academy House in transcribing Irish, etc., under direction of the librarian at the rate of 15 shillings per week, hours from 10 to half five, with one for dinner in the middle of, this day, of the day. The engagement to commence as soon as possible. I also undertake to give him all the instruction I can in transcribing and learning Irish. This engagement to be terminable by one month's notice on either side. Yours respectfully, Joseph O'Longan. O'Longan's son began his employment as academy scribe on the 25th of March 1874, and to the weekly salary of 15 shillings referred to here by his father, he received a premium of £25 from the Cunningham Fund in November 1875 in recognition, quote, of the laborious nature and the amount of time devoted to the work, unquote. Incidentally, he is also likely to be the Mach e Longoin, whom Douglas Hyde included among the competent native speakers of Irish who lived in Dublin and who joined the Gaelic League on its formation in 1893. There is a certain irony, as Timothy O'Neill has pointed out, in the fact that Joseph Longoin, the last of the hereditary scribes, died while working to have his pen work mechanically re reproduced by lithography. That is true, of course. But Olongoin's facsimile transcripts, which were lithographically reproduced by the Royal Irish Academy, remind us of the changing times for scribes in Ireland, who by the middle of the 19th century were transcribing texts in Irish for their reproduction in print. Another instance is Paul Olongoin's text of Gordine Anonymous, which was lithographically reproduced in 1844 by Timothy O'Callaghan, whose business was at 45 South Mall, Cork. As is clear from the title page here, Paul O'Longoin's term for lithography, and I'll just enlarge that, is clochvola, stone stamping. And it's a very precise term, as is, um, um, as is his term for the, um, the stone grubber, or for the lithographer, cloch rafador, which literally translates as stone grubber. So the original lithographic reproduction is captured by, by those two terms by him. And the original of that reproduction of Olongan's text is now in the private possession of a former teacher of mine, Professor Padraig O'Rean, Emeritus Professor of Early and Medieval Irish in UCC. So to conclude, the Irish scribal tradition owes much to the remarkable contribution of the Olongan scribes because they ensured that the production and dissemination of texts in manuscripts, as well as a concomitant tradition of Gaelic script, endured down to the final decades of the 19th century. It's tempting to ask, of course, 
whether the, the, the tradition of learning which Michal Og had inherited would have continued into two subsequent generations had he followed through on his plan to emigrate to America early in the year 1795. I like to think that it would, in light of recent studies on the pr promotion of Irish scholarship among emigrants who settled in Boston, New York and Philadelphia, for, for example. Be that as it may, Irish language scholarship is indeed much the ri richer for the remarkable contribution of the Olongoyan family of scribes. Thank you very much.